I really appreciate um, Kat's testimony this morning in that uh, we often overlook how a small gesture can make a big impact in someone's life, especially in terms of timing, that God is working in ways that we don't expect. And even, um, even $5, which again, I think at Voyager doesn't get you very far, um, can make someone's day and be a way in which um, God speaks to someone else. Um, and that's what I'm going to be talking about today, um, the power of gospel proclamation in light of the resurrection, in light of Jesus being raised from the dead. Um, I also want to uh, thank those of you who participated, especially the volunteers who were a part of our Good Friday experience, our Good Friday service, uh, which involves Stations of the Cross. And I know some of our volunteers um, didn't get to go through all the different stations, um, and we probably are not going to reenact it anytime soon, um, at least before next year. Um, and even then, we'll still reevaluate. Um, but if you remember a volunteer who was at a station, um, could I ask you to just let them know how meaningful that was for you um, and what you thought about as you're going through it? Um, because even though they can't, they may not be able to experience it themselves, it is good to be able to hear a story about someone's experience. And shared stories about are what make a community. Um, and so when we share stories about what happens, um, it impacts us, it changes us, and transforms us. So I'd encourage you guys to, to share some stories about that. Um, someone also asked, I think, I think Jay and someone else was wondering, like, how much does a cross weigh? Because I know part of it was carrying a, a weight. Um, I Googled it. I think it's 165 pounds is how much a, a wooden cross weighs. So um, the heaviest weight I think we had there was like 60. So it's uh, a lot less than what a cross weighs. Um, so as we start uh, this message today, we're going to be talking through Mark chapter 16. And we're going, to skip a, we're going to skip ahead. We're in the book of Mark. We're going to skip ahead in the gospel of Mark to um, chapter 16. And as we look at chapter 16, um, one of the things that I want you to be thinking about is um, some of the dynamics that are happening in our culture and our institutions, okay, especially the church. Because one of the things that I've noticed and I have encountered and, and experienced is that um, in the past two years— I have seen a, a, a level, a number of church scandals that I feel like I haven't experienced in the rest of my Christian life, okay, just in the last two years. And so whether it's um, sexual harassment, um, whether it's money mismanagement, whether it's spiritual abuse, whether it's covering, covering up sexual harassment or some, some type of uh, um, internal scandal, um, I am astounded by the number of Christian leaders who have fallen um, out of celebrity. And what is this has made me wonder, um, because Andy Crouch, a, a speaker that we heard a couple weeks ago, has described these last two years as a collapse of consensus trust in institutions. A collapse of consensus trust in institutions, where whether it's public health, as I've talked about, whether it's our government, all the different aspects that we value and think are important, including and especially the church, uh, people no longer trust. And I know there's all kinds of spiritual upheaval among churches. It feels like uh, very mature Christians have been disconnected from the local communities that they've worshipped with for years, for even decades. And so what we're looking at now is this, uh, it, it feels like when it comes to the church, especially with leaders, that you're one and done. Like it's one time and it's over. Like you screw up big on the big stage and you don't come back. And what that's led me to wonder is how does the Bible think about this? How does the resurrection change how we view an institution? How does it change how we view Christian leaders? 
And so with that, let's turn to Mark chapter 16. We're going to answer, we're going to answer and look at that question. Mark chapter 16. And all of this is going to take place, this is at the very end of the book, so we really need to kind of set some context about what's just happening. That's the crucifixion um, and the death of Jesus and his burial. And the Sabbath has just passed, and so we're now we're in 16. I'm going to read 1 through 8. Okay, chapter 16 of Mark, 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go ahead and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had, had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. That's great. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. I love hearing the, the twins back there. That's great. It's, uh, <laughs> we can do it. Okay. So the first thing I want you to notice in this account is that the heroes of this section are these three women. Okay. Okay. Sorry. Let me take that back. Yes. Jesus is the hero. Jesus is always the hero in the book of Mark. But <laughs> in addition to Jesus, uh, this, these three women are the heroes of the story. And they are, first, they are the first ones to bear witness to the resurrection. And they're important characters in the narrative of Jesus' death and resurrection. And part of the reason that they're important is because they are foils for the disciples. Because the, the, the conspicuous absence of the disciples is telling here. The disciples are supposed to be at this moment, but they are missing, okay? In fact, the women are called, are told to go out and find the disciples. Um, and in, in addition to that, all the um, death and crucifixion accounts of Jesus, the disciples are also missing because they deserted him. They are conspicuously absent. And the presence of these women is meant to be a rebuke of the disciples. And so just to give you a little more context, in Mark 14, Jesus prophesies, prophesies that, when the shepherd, that when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will scatter. And then that's when Peter, who's called out here, infamously makes his proclamation that he's never going to deny Jesus. Okay? Upon which Jesus responds that he's actually going to not deny him three times before the rooster crows twice. And yet Peter doubles down on his promise along with the rest, along with the rest of the disciples. And of course, they eat their words because that's exactly what turns out happening. And again, the contrast is meant to be stark because in Mark 15, which is the previous chapter, the presence of these three women who are named, again, they're, they're Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and then uh, Salome. These women are mentioned in Mark 15, and it's intentional and part of God's plan. Because at this most significant point in human history, the chosen people of God, or Jesus' chosen people, the disciples are missing, but these group of women are present, that they are watching. And not only do they watch and witness his crucifixion, they also know where Jesus is buried. They watch his burial. And that's important because, this, because now they're bringing spices, right? And, and in our Good Friday experience, there were spices to kind of like 
that were similar to the ones that are, were used to embalm Jesus. Um, and I think what's, what's important here is that this embalming process, it, it helped to make things, uh, it's helped to, to pre not prevent, but to keep the, the rotting smell of a dead body. And one of the things that we were thinking about as we were doing this, uh, putting together this Good Friday service is whether we want maybe some blood to be part of um, the smells that we would have. Um, but we realized that would be really deeply offensive um, to have that. And so we settled on the spices. And then even as we read this in life group, um, one, of the, one of our life group members said, uh, you know, what, what was he thinking as he was reading the section? He thought, well, it's like a marinade, you know. This is like a Jesus marinade. Um, and on that note, you know, we're going to have a communion barbecue after service featuring <laughs> Jesus dry rub. So, but that concern is alleviated, right? Because now the, the, when the women r get to the tomb, what they notice is that the stone has been rolled away, right? The stone has been moved from the tomb. And that has been their concern because one of the, the Roman authorities, when they had arrived, um, they had put the, the stone in front of the tomb because they knew, they suspected the followers of Jesus would want to steal the body. And so uh, the women are astounded that the, tomb, that the stone has been rolled away when they arrive. Now, I'm going to continue reading verse 9 of Mark 16. And what you'll notice, I think most of your Bibles will say that this version from 9 on to the end of the chapter is not in the earliest manuscripts. And so what I want to encourage you is that the reason this was included as part of the original, even though it's not in the earliest manuscripts, is because uh, it's consistent with other accounts of the gospel. And it's, it's consistent with the character of Jesus. And so that's why it has been included in here. Um, but you'll see that in the parentheses. So let me read 16, 9 through 11. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. Okay, so... Um, even though Mary Magdalene and these three women are alarmed by what they've seen, they are, they are, they are afraid. It says at the end, of, in the end of verse 9 that they are trembling and astonished. Yet they still go and obey what the angel told them, and they go find Peter and the disciples, and they tell them as they were mourning and weeping. And I don't want you to notice that even then the disciples still did not believe. And I think this is an interesting... I think this is actually a really important uh, event in terms of the disciples' unbelief and the women's belief because women were not highly regarded in the ancient Near East and much of the Bible, at first glance, does not appear to treat women with equal status or value in comparison to men. And yet, throughout the scriptures, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are heroic women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, for example, who are mentioned by name and for their faith and faithfulness to the covenant. And so now you have these three women, including Mary Magdalene, who's mentioned by name four times in the Gospel of Mark. And anytime someone's mentioned by name, it's actually hugely significant because you even have nameless people like Abraham's servant who are heroic in the Bible, but they don't even have, you don't even get their name. And so the fact that their names are recognized is tremendously important. And what I, what I think is uh, is is kind of exciting that in this moment, in terms of breakthrough regarding women, that it's kind of like the, uh, the redemption of Eve. Because what is Eve? You know, she, she trusted a lie, and her husband believed her. 
But Mary, Mary Magdalene, trusts the truth, and men don't believe her. Right? So she's actually kind of the opposite of the Eve figure. She's like a, redemption, she's like a redemptive figure for Eve. Um, and the, I think the other thing that's kind of crazy about the disciples disbelieving Mary is what reason did they have to disbelieve her? What reason did they have not to believe her? Like, if, if they were thinking um, that it would make them feel better, the disciples feel better by knowing that Jesus resurrected, they would always find out, right? They would easily find out that this was a lie. And so the women had really no reason to lie about this, and yet the disciples did not believe them. The disciples did not believe the women. <clears throat> but that's not the only thing that they, they continued to not believe. This is Mark 16, 12. After, after these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Okay, so verses 12 and 13 are another indication of the disciples' unbelief. Because this seems to be describing the road to Emmaus, which is in Luke 24, where there's two disciples, Jesus kind of disguises himself, and he arrives uh, and, and encounters these two disciples and walks with them, explaining in the scriptures how he was supposed to die and rise again. And those disciples finally, toward the end, recognize that this is Jesus. And they tell the other disciples, but now, again, the disciples still do not believe. And then in verse 14, it says, Afterward, he, Jesus, appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. So, what we have is disciples who have unbelief, who have hardness of heart. And I think it is so, I think it's so easy to make the disciples the bad guy. They're like the keystone cops, right? They're like bumbling idiots throughout the Gospels. And then post-Pentecost, they become like superheroes. And I think what I want to do today, what I want to do this morning, is I want to actually recognize that the disciples are more like us, or we're more like the disciples than we'd like to admit. Okay, we are far more like the disciples. But let me, let me put together a little more context for the disciples' lives. Now, they had spent almost all of their time together with Jesus for the past three years. You've, they've been invested in. They have watched the miracles. They haven't actually believed a lot of what he said, but they've stuck with him. And let me be clear, Jesus did teach the disciples, recorded in Mark 8.31. I'm just using the Mark account. Recorded in Mark 8.31 that he was going to be rejected, that he would suffer many things, that he would be executed, and that he would rise again three days later. And then Peter rebukes Jesus. Jesus counter-rebukes him, <laughs> calling him Satan. And then there's, then there's the transfiguration, where these, Jesus is transfigured. Jesus looks um, glorious. And then again, Jesus talks about rising again after three days. So that's the second time he's talked about rising again on three days. And the disciples still don't get it because they're really excited about Jesus' celebrity. He's like a rocket ship, you know. He is, he is going big, and it's like, I don't know, being like employee number 1 through 12 at Tesla, right? They, they know that this is going to be really big. And then Mark 9.33, they ask the question, who is going to be the greatest disciple? And then there's a teaching about wealth. And then again, James and John ask, who's going to be seated at your right hand? So again, they're just like really excited to be part of Jesus' entourage. And they're excited to be part of Jesus' celebrity. And they want to cash in. They want to catch, they, they expect to cash in in eternity, right? They want um, status and position in heaven. Um, and then it comes crashing down, right? 
So they were told three times, this is now, I think the last time is Mark 10, 34, where um, he says he will rise again, and they still don't get it, but then all the wheels fall off, it all comes crashing down, um, and Jesus is crucified. And then as a result, uh, when, they are in, when the women encounter them, it says they were in mourning and they were weeping. And I want you to take a second and just imagine that you were the disciples and that you were hitching your, you know, hitching your wagon. I'm not sure what the, how you say it, right? Hitching your wagon. Thanks, Austin. Uh, hitching your wagon to Jesus, the celebrity, and you're so excited because you're going to get, you know, eternal stock options and you're going to make it big and it's going to be absolutely insane and then the whole thing falls completely apart because these disciples went all in with Jesus. They put everything into this and then it all comes crashing down. And in that moment of when it comes crashing down, there is a power of pain and disappointment and humiliation. And I think it's important that we not underestimate the power of grief and the power of disappointment to keep you from even believing what's good. And I think what's also really important, because I have bad days, and even my bad days, and when I say bad day, I'm like not getting enough sleep, or like something in my neck. You know what I mean? Like these are really minor things that give me a bad day. But even in those moments, it's actually really hard to believe that Jesus loves me. <laughs> okay? It's actually really hard. And so for the, for the disciples to invest so much in their life, and they want something, they want an eternal reward. Okay? And for that all to come crashing down, it must have been tremendously disappointing. And it's hard to come back from that. And then I think here is the biggest thing. I think this is the most difficult thing. Um, because Peter and the rest of the disciples deserted Jesus. They abandoned him. Okay? At the very moment when he needed them the most. What Jesus' resurrection means is that they are now going to be confronted with their guilt and with their shame. They have, to, they have to come to terms with that. They have to face Jesus, right? Because it's actually easier if Jesus stays dead because then they don't have to be reminded of what they did. They can actually just mourn. They can blame Jesus for being a failure, for not doing what he said he was going to do, and then they can move on with their life. But if Jesus is alive, then they are going to be judged. <laughs> that would be your expectation, because that's what I would do. If the disciples, that's what I would do, right? I would come back and I would say, hey, look, you guys betrayed me and you left me. You deserted me, and I'm going to judge and condemn you, because that's what the disciples deserved. And the problem with resurrection is if Jesus is, coming, if Jesus is coming back, then we're in trouble. The disciples realize they were in trouble. And he's either going to get revenge on the disciples or he's going to find a brand new set of disciples. But that's exactly what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't do that. He does rebuke them. He rebukes them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. I think people don't believe and have hardness of heart for specific reasons. Okay? Uh, we do it because it benefits us. We don't believe and we have hardness of heart because we experience a benefit from it. Because the ultimate aspect of sin, when we talk about sin, the evil that lies within us, is an inability to see beyond one's failures and weakness and disappointments and even evil. So the Pharisees blamed Jesus out of jealousy. And even in his hometown, they'd rather spite Jesus than be content with the reality of his authority. And so, for instance, in Mark 3, 5, the other instance where hardness of heart is used, Jesus looks around in anger about, during the Sabbath about someone being healed. And, Jesus would, and, and the people 
who uh, planted, this man um, who had the shriveled hand, they would rather see the man with a shriveled hand go unhealed than see Jesus heal him on the Sabbath. And that's the ultimate in selfishness. And then in Mark 6, 46, where it talks about, also talks about unbelief, Jesus is in his hometown, and he can't do any miracles because they have no faith, because their world is so small. And I think there's a lot of different ways to think about what sin is. I know Austin talked about it last week. You know, we talk about sin as, as missing the mark. The meaning of the word is to miss the mark. But sin is this evil that's inside of us, attitudes and values and behavior. And there's so many metaphors, but if I could give one metaphor to what sin does, it's, uh, it's to make your world very small. The, the, the product of sin is to make your world about you. And I think about King Nebuchadnezzar, because one way to make your world really small is to make your world really, is to make yourself really big. <laughs> okay? That's one way to make your world really small is making yourself large. Um, King Nebuchadnezzar made himself very large. He made himself a statue of himself and told everyone to worship him. So that was one aspect of making his world very large. But I think actually a lot of us are tempted by a different way of thinking, a different kind of world that's very small, where you care, what you care about, the things that you're involved with in your life are very small things. And what I think about there is I think about Jonah, and I think about at the end of Jonah, um, he receives this plant, okay, that gives him shade. And then God allows this plant that gives him shade to wither. And Jonah is so angry because the shade is gone. Okay, the shade is gone, and now he's uncomfortable. But that shade plant was his world, <laughs> okay? That shade plant is, was his world, and God says to him, look, you care about this shade plant, and I care about the people of Nineveh. Your world is too small. Your world is too small. And the problem with sin and with evil and ourself and our self-centeredness, because at the root of sin is our self-centeredness, is we just shrink our world and that results in death and alienation. Your, your world is too small. And so one of the doctrines of sin in Christianity is this idea of total depravity. And total depravity means, you can, you can think of it meaning in two things. Number one, that evil is per, pervasive and it's profound. Profound means it's deep inside of us. It, it occupies our, various, our, our very depths of our person. You can't, you can't just pull it out. You can't work it out. It requires a complete renovation of the heart. It requires death. That's what profound means. The other aspect of sin is that it's pervasive. It affects everyone. I'm looking at all of you in this room, and sin affects you. And sin is part of your nature. And you are self-centered. Just a second. Let me make sure my hair is okay. What was I saying? Um, you are self-centered. <laughs> and it's pervasive. And that means no one is innocent. Okay? No one. There are no exceptions. We all make it about ourselves. And we can't see beyond ourselves. And we are all guilty of that. And yet this is the solution um, that Jesus gives regarding his disciples in verse 15. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. 
In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. And what is, what is fascinating here is that Jesus doesn't go through, I mean, according to Mark, there is no extensive restoration process of the disciples after he rebukes them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. Okay? His solution is actually very simple. I want you to go in the world and proclaim the gospel. This is how you address your unbelief and hardness of heart. Go tell people about the gospel. And if there's really nothing new here, because that's actually what Jesus has been teaching his disciples all along the way. He says, you know, whatever I was doing with you before, you just keep doing that. Nothing has changed. The mission has not changed. There's nothing different about the mission. In fact, your failure is part of the mission, okay? The disciples' failure is part of the mission. And I think this is what is radical about the church, that is different from any other institution. I was talking about Christian leaders who fail. This movement was founded on the failure of its leaders. Okay. The church is founded on the failure of the disciples. Their desertion of Jesus is what the church is founded upon because that's the foundation of the gospel is failure, weakness, and evil. The reality of that being taken onto the cross onto Jesus, into death, and then receiving new life again. That is the power of the gospel. And then it says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And I think this is a really important aspect in talking about the gospel because there's a couple different things happening. And, and I think one of the questions you may have as you read that section is, is he talking about the disciples to believe or is he talking about other people? And I would say all of the above. He's talking about anyone. So the disciples themselves need to believe the gospel that their sins have been taken. Their unbelief and hardness of heart has been, uh, has been remedied, okay? Has been addressed by the cross because here's the problem with sin because it's pervasive and it's profound. We're all victims of it. We're all diseased. We're all infected. Each and every one of us. Each and every one of us is infected. And that problem with that evil, is it, it, it takes us into death. And the only way that you come out of it, the only way that you see beyond your world is if God transforms your world. And that's why it says go into all the world because he has an expansive view. The gospel has an expansive view uh, of, of this world. And the way that we expand that view is by believing the gospel that um, apart from the gospel, we are condemned, right? Because the default status of all of us, the default status without Christ is that we are condemned for evil, we are condemned for our unbelief, we are condemned for our hardness of heart. And so in preaching the gospel, when you believe it, you will naturally speak it. And that's why I appreciate hearing Kat's story today. Because in the act of giving these notes um, out to people and the $5, what you're actually reinforcing is do you actually believe the message that you're proclaiming? Do we actually believe the message that we are proclaiming? And the disciples were challenged in that moment um, in their failure, in their weakness. Is the power of Jesus' resurrection enough 
to overcome their failure, their evil, and their weakness. And Jesus is like, yes, just go. You you need to go and proclaim the gospel because I am appearing before you today to tell you that my death and resurrection is sufficient to cancel out what you deserve because Jesus stood in our place. Jesus took on the condemnation that we deserved by dying on the cross so that we wouldn't have to. And so um, I want to speak to a number of you in terms of of how to think about this. One, it's easy to think of faith as being binary, and in a lot of aspects it is binary. You either have faith or you don't. And yet what I think this passage is teaching us is that the disciples, I believe, throughout their time with Jesus, exercised faith. I believe they had faith. And when the Bible talks about unbelief and hardness of heart, we need to see it as inevitable that it happens and it interferes with our faith, but that unbelief and faith can coexist because I think that was, that was something that was interfering with the disciples at that point. So faith and unbelief can coexist. Um, and I would show one evidence of that in the disciples. And the, the disciples, before they saw Jesus appear to them, um, they were still together. Okay, They didn't completely scatter. They were still together. Um, and then the last part about proclaiming the gospel, I, I like to talk to those of you who have been Christians for a long time. Okay, If you've been in the church for a long time. Um, and sharing the gospel is just not a natural aspect uh, of your life. And I want to, I want to, um, I want to propose that maybe sharing the gospel is not an a- natural aspect part of your life because your world is too small. Your world is 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 very small. And what Jesus is commanding here is to go into all the world, go into all the world, and it actually says proclaim to all creation, proclaim to the whole creation. Okay, and when we think whole creation, we think like I think like animals and rocks and those kind of things. I actually don't think it means that because I don't I don't see Jesus doing that. Okay, I don't see him modeling that. I think whole creation just means everyone. Just talk to anyone about the gospel. Make your world big because the world is big. And I think for some of you who um, you've been a Christian for a long time and your world is very small, um, there may be some unbelief and hardness of heart in you regarding the gospel. Okay, and I would just inquire of that. If that's not a pattern of your life, because that is the remedy to, to unbelief and hardness of heart, is to proclaim the gospel, is to go out and find people. And when I say find people, I mean the people in your house. Okay, you can start there. And now we have Zoom. You can proclaim the gospel anywhere. Okay, you can plan, proclaim the gospel anywhere all over the world. And then gospel proclamation is not just something that you do with words. It includes words, um, but as Kat described, it also just involves these simple gestures. It involves a $5 bill and a note, okay? It involves everything we do. And what I find is fascinating is that these disciples also um, had accompanying signs. I've never done any of those signs. I've never held a serpent um, and not been bitten. Okay, well, maybe I have, but, but it hasn't, hadn't, didn't have to do with preaching the gospel. But the, these accompanying signs confirmed the reality of Jesus, okay? And so would you go out and find people and proclaim the gospel because it is a practice. It is a way of life. It's not something you do in a class. It is something that needs repetition, that you do in different situations. Um, and I want to close with this. In Mark 16, 8, 8 or 9, it says, but go tell his disciples, and then it says something interesting, and Peter that is going before you to Galilee. He says, and Peter. Okay, he doesn't just, he didn't, he calls out the disciples in general, and then he calls out specifically Peter, okay? And why would he call out Peter? Well, Peter is the one that was prophesied to deny Jesus three times. I mean, he was the biggest, 
next to Judas, the second biggest traitor, and he's the one who talked big game to Jesus in the first place, who said that he, wasn't, he was never going to leave him and rebukes Jesus for that. And yet, Jesus calls his, uh, Jesus makes sure, the angel makes sure to call out Peter specifically. And so if you have been a Christian for a long time, and, sharing, and proclaiming the gospel is not a pattern of your life because your world is too small, would you just know that Jesus is calling your name today? And all you need to do is just, you just need to just own it because you can have all kinds of excuses about why you don't. You can blame other people. You can blame COVID. You can blame your age. You can blame all, your, your health. You can blame all these different things. But at the end of the day, those just sound like unbelief and hardness of heart. And what Jesus is asking you to do is just to believe him. It's just to trust him. To trust his death and his resurrection is sufficient for you. Would you believe him today? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for showing us through the scriptures the reality even in the foundational leaders of the church, the disciples, that unbelief and hardness of heart happen. And that is not meant to um, disillusion us about the disciples. It is meant to indicate to us the pervasiveness and how profound sin, how profound evil exists in our life. That apart from you, we stand condemned. And so God, would we repent today? Will we confess the ways in which unbelief and hardness of heart have affected us to make our world small? Would we believe the gospel that you have brought us out of death and into life. We pray this in your name. Amen.